Welcome to The Writing Life, the podcast for anyone who writes. I'm James Gill. And I'm Steph McKenna. From the National Centre for Writing here at Dragon Hall in Norwich. This episode features a panel discussion with the AKO Kane Prize 2022 shortlisted writers, celebrating the vibrancy, variety and splendour of creative talent among writers of African descent. So says 2022 Chair of Judges, Oki Ndibe. The panel was hosted here at Dragon Hall by Aobami Adebayo in July, and we were delighted to welcome Joshua Chizomo from Nigeria, author of Collector of Memories, Nana Ahmed Dankwa from Ghana, author of When a Man Loves a Woman, Hannah Georges from Ethiopia, author of A Double-Edged Inheritance, Idza Lehumyo from Kenya, author of Five Years Next Sunday, and Billy McTurnan from Ghana, author of Labadi Sunshine Bar. Apologies if I have mispronounced most of those words. The annual AKO Kane Prize aims to bring African writing to a wider audience, popularising short fiction from authors on the continent and the diaspora. Launched in 2000, the prize is awarded to an African writer of a short story published in English. As a live event, some of the sound quality is occasionally lower than you might have come to expect, but 99% of it is fine, so please persevere through those few moments as this conversation is well worth your time. Ah, the perks of a live event. And so, without further delay, we bring you the writers of the 2022 AKO Kane Prize. Hello, hello, hello. I just have the, the very nice job of welcoming you all tonight to Dragon Hall. My name's Peggy, and I'm the executive director here at the National Centre for Writing, and it's really, really great that you could join us for this very special evening with the AKO Kane shortlisted writers. Can we give them an enormous round of applause and welcome, first of all? So I wanted to welcome Sarah to the stage. Sarah's the director of the Kane Prize. She's going to tell you a little bit more about the prize and then hand over uh, to Ayabami, who's going to be chairing this conversation. I did want to remind that we've got the books at the back. They're beautiful, hot off the press. The first anthology that's been published, I believe, since 2018. So very special. So I'll hand to Sarah, then we'll get going and we'll just clap really loudly on because It's wonderful to have everyone here. Thank you. How are we feeling today? Tasnim is one of the audience here today, also a good friend. Um, so she was like, oh, the vibe is really good tonight. And I was like, yes, good vibe. Okay, yes. So I say that because let's keep the vibe going. It's a good conversation about books. And of course, today is aptly titled AKO King Prize Celebration. Come on, come on, come on. Woo! <laughs> So, I'll tell you a little bit about the prize. So, the AKO Kane Prize for African Writing was established in 1999. And the first winner was the first prize awarded in 2000 to the amazing Leila Abulela, whom some of you might know, but I needed to read more of them. So, the AKO Kane Prize exists to amplify the works of African writers on the continent and in the diaspora. And so, the writers who are here today are the 2022 shortlisted writers for the prize. We do three things. The first thing we do is the annual award for a short story and then we run a workshop in the African continent in a country on the African continent and so this year the workshop was run in Ghana and you have stories nine stories from the workshop in the anthology the anthology also includes the five stories by these amazing illustrious writers whom you need to get to know so okay it really is an honour and a privilege to be at the National Centre for Writing. I mean, Norwich is such a beautiful city with very strong literary heritage. And um, so today's conversation is chaired by the 
amazing award-winning writer, Ayobami Adebayo. She's the author of Stay With Me, a book that is beautiful, lyrical, haunting, heartbreaking, and unforgettable. She's also the author of a forthcoming book out in February 2023. Mark that month and the year in your mind, okay? And the book is titled A Spell of Good Things. Girl, girl, girl. <laughs> so I'm now going to pass on to Ayabami Adebayo, who is going to just take us on a wonderful conversation with the amazing 2022 AKO Kim Price, shortly said writer. So please, can we please applaud them? Thank you. Hi, good evening. Um, thank you so much for coming this evening. Uh, it's truly an honor and a pleasure to speak to the shortlisted writers um, on this year's uh, AKO Kane Prize for African Writing. Um, I'm just going to bore you a little with some of my personal connection with um, Norwich and the Kane Prize. So my first time in Norwich was almost a decade ago now. I came to do the Hemane Creative Writing. And one of um, the best moments on the Creative Writing um, program at that time was doing a course on sh the short story and reading that year's, I think the previous year's winner of the Kane Prize um, for African writing Novale Bulawayo's Eating Budapest. Um, it feels full circle for me personally to be speaking to these incredibly brilliant writers about their stories. Could we give them a round of applause again? Um, <laughs> so to start with, they're going to read short excerpts from the brilliant, brilliant stories that they have been honored for. Again, I would like to point out that the anthology is available in the back. These are really fantastic stories. I'm going to start from Nana, if you don't mind. And she's going to read from our story. Um, my story is titled, When a Man Loves a Woman. And <laughs> this is good, OK. Um, and I'm going to just read the beginning. Every morning for the past five days, Kwame had woken up next to a corpse. Well, technically, Ajua had not yet become a corpse. She was still a fully breathing, flesh and blood human being. But there was no way in those first few lucid moments that Kwame could have known this. So each morning, he'd lean over, position his lips right next to Ajua's ear, and whisper in a voice rough and gravelly, an odd mixture of fear and sleep. Good morning, my love. And then he'd wait, the fear twisting his intestines into a tight bow of pain. Each morning, she'd return the greeting, meaning, of course, that she was not dead. Good morning, sweetheart, she'd mumble, turning to face him, her eyes wide open, the hazel pupil shimmering with life. She'd then softly, softly place her lips on his, making him remember why he loved this woman with all his heart, and making him regret, at least momentarily, his decision to end her life. 
Had this been before the illness, as they still for some reason called his bout with cancer, Kwame would have received her kiss as the invitation it was. He would have pulled Ajua to him, and they would have made the sweetest, most tender love. That had always been their way, their ritual. Before breakfast with the kids, before the obligatory, the obligatory daily discussions about the details of each person's day, then the school drop-offs and the long work commutes, before anything else, there had always been that, their love. It was elemental. He sincerely believed that those lovemaking mornings had kept them together for 25 years. It wasn't simply the sex. It was all that informed it, defined it, drove them to it. Some couples observed date nights or planned regular weekend getaways as a means of checking in, making sure they were still in step. For Ajwa and Kwame, their time together each morning did the trick. It confirmed anew that they were still each other's priority, that even with all the things and people vying for their attention, they still chose to greet every single day in each other's arms. And it was in that embrace, their passion spent, that they planned and dreamed, declared their commitment to one another. Their mornings brought to the fore a certain vulnerability, one that spilled over into the rest of their interactions, made them more willing to compromise, to forgive. Kwame desperately missed that intimacy, especially now that they'd returned to Accra. And yet, whenever Ajoa inched her body closer to his and slid her hand inside his pajama bottoms, he immediately recoiled and pulled it away. Okay, now that you've heard Nana read from her beautiful story, I'll tell you a bit more about her. Nana Amadankwa was born in Accra, Ghana, and immigrated to the US as a child. She's the author of the memoir, Willow Weep For Me, A Black Woman's Journey Through Depression, and editor of the anthologies, Becoming American, Shaking the Tree, The Black Body, and most recently, Accra Noir. Her work has been widely anthologized and published in magazines and newspapers, such as Essence, The Washington Post, The Village Voice, and The Los Angeles Times. She has taught at Otis College of Arts and Design, Antioch College, University of Ghana, and NYU in Ghana. Thank you for that beautiful reading, then. And now we go to Hannah. The whole family had recoiled in performative horror as news of Tigist Nagash's pregnancy snaked through their networks. Tigist, the youngest and brightest of seven girls, was the beacon on whom all their hopes had rested. She'd received the highest marks in her class at Kedana Miret, a future engineer whose first semester at Aditabha University had been so impressive that her, that her professors called her mother on several occasions to insist she consider sending Tigist abroad to continue her studies. It was Tigist who had turned down their offers with a sudden, furious anger. The flash in her eyes was, a quiet, was quiet, a lightning-fast break from the pools of warmth with which she normally saw the world. She didn't want to leave. Adisababa was home. What could 
exist beyond it. She hardly left Amskilo. Quiet and pious, Tika spent all her time studying or following a maye. Until, of course, she met Robel. Robel Gurma smelled like whiskey and freshly printed burr. It was nauseating at first. His scent so strong it knocked Tigist off balance when their shoulders bumped against each other in Shiromeda one early krimp day. he'd whispered through a crooked grin that sent her head spinning. He reached down to help her up, gold rings on three of his calloused fingers. She'd been shopping for Gabi's that morning, nervous about her first night in university housing. Her older sister had moved back from home after her husband's disappearance, carrying two children with a bad back and a broken spirit. Tigga's room in their mother's house soon became the children's playground. Their constant tugs at her netella, a consistent interruption to her strict studying regimen. But still, she loved them. And so she planned to spend more time on campus, buried in the, burrowed in the libraries. That would have to do. Anmaz was a literature professor at her niece's university, a stoic career woman who lived alone in an apartment tucked between Sadiskilo and Embassy Row. Sharp and poetic, she prided herself on her pragmatism, even and especially when others told her she didn't behave like an Ethiopian woman should. Almaz wanted Tigas to take her professor's advice and leave. She didn't understand why a bright young girl would want to stay in Addis tending to her family when the world was calling. Almaz had never taken much inter- interest in her nieces and nephews, but she found housing on campus for Tigis the moment she heard the girl insisted on staying in Addis Ababa. Don't thank me, Ad- Almaz had said, less a demure platitude and more an agitated demand. Please, Abakish, just meet people who'd not live inside your books or your mother's house. Tigist had been thinking about her aunt's directive as she shopped for gabis, pressing them against her face. They smelled strange and dirty, unlike the gabis her mother had washed meticulously each season. None of them were soft enough. None of them felt like home. Hannah Gerges is a staff writer at The Atlantic, the daughter of Ethiopian immigrants. She lives in Brooklyn by way of Southern California. Her criticism and reporting have appeared in publications including the New York Times Magazine, The Guardian, and Pitchfork. Hannah's short stories have appeared in the Addis Ababa Noor Anthology, The Lifted Brow Literary Journal, and Spook Magazine. She was the recipient of the 2018 Eugene Grace Words, okay. Writers of Immigration and Diaspora Fellowship at the Jack Jones Literary Hearts Retreat and the 2021 Res- Writer in Residence at Syracuse University's SI Newhouse School of Public Communications. Most recently, Anna Cole wrote Ida B. the Queen, The Extraordinary Life and Legacy of Ida B. Wells, a dedication to the pioneering American journalist and advocate with Wells' great-granddaughter, Michelle Duster. Thank you for your reading, Hannah. And now, Hidza. He has friends. He has friends. They are loud. They stare. They ask whether it is okay to reach out, touch my hair. It's just hair, and yet I have never seen such hair, is what they say. It's so natural, they say, real. They shudder. They are, all, they are almost always men, but sometimes they are women too. No, not women, 
a woman, Honey. Of course, it is not her real name. None of them, including Seth, use their real names. She has anxious eyes, Honey, a sweet smile, and a wild, pretty heart caught up in a lost cause on the wrong continent. I feel like I could like her and still keep my wits about me. I catch her staring at me. When our eyes meet, we laugh. We've been looking at each other all night. She's from Belgium by way of Iran, she says, when we finally start talking. Sema Seth, she says. I cannot locate Iran on a map. I don't believe her. Still, I forgive the lie. There is something about her that calls out to me. Some sadness, some greatiness, some stoicism in the thick of things. She looks like she has seen the other side of the world, seen it inside out or outside in, and for that reason has come to expect very little from it. And yet, that unguarded softness, as if she would yield to the slightest tenderness, to the first person who walked up to her and asked her her real name, asked, asked how she was doing, Yani really doing. I want to scoop her up and save her. She keeps staring at me. I am unable to look away. Um, another night, Honey pulls me away from the party of laughing men and asks whether I smoke. I shake my head, say no. Still, I accompany her outside. They're all obsessed with that hair, she says. Flicks the cigarette ash, takes a drug. You must be tired of it. I smile, say nothing. Have you ever thought of cutting it, selling it, she says. I skull, sell my hair, why? She catches the scorn, bounces it back to me with a skull of her own followed by a shake of her head. You African women wear her hair all the time, she says. Do you ever see her surprised? I finally get it. She's in love with Seth, beyond herself. And so out of jealousy, or that perverse need to maim that which one loves, I say, I don't even love him, you know? She looks at me long, hard. She frowns, takes a drag of a cigarette. It's the first time I have seen pure, calm rage. Then she says, of course you don't. Do you think Wazungu was stupid? She's tapping her head as she says this, though we don't know it's all about the money. Her eyes are ablaze, but I know defeated anger when I see it. I play my cards as I want, hurt her as deep as I can. Even if I were to leave him, I say he still will not come to you. We both know it's that stupid hair, she says. She grinds a cigarette butt with the soles of her feet. She's barefoot, love burns. He's a Kenya writer. Our work has been published by Popular, Jalada Africa, The Rightivism Anthology, Bapasa Literary and Hearts Quarterly, Mathoka Books, Garden Square Review, Amsterdam's Zam Magazine, Short Story Day Africa, The New Internationalist, The Dark and African Arguments. Our work has been shortlisted for the Short Story Day Africa Prize, the Miles Monlod Writing Scholarship, and the Erout Crack Award. She's the inaugural winner of the Margaret Bosby New Daughters of Africa Award and the winner of the Short Story Day Africa Prize 2021. Madame Joanna warned the girls not to get too close to the clients. Love can be dangerous, she'd say. But love was never an option for Priscilla. Why have love when you can have freedom? Love was what kept her mother pregnant, recycled promises and pleas for forgiveness, always inevitably led to a new baby. Love was what made her grandmother, who'd lived her whole life in the village, keep a decades-long hope that her childhood sweetheart would return to her after his studies in Accra 
and then later in Europe as a young graduate to make an honest woman of her. Love was what kept her auntie serving Sunday after church acclay and soup to their drunk and hot-tempered husbands who left them with Saturday night bruises. If there was one thing Priscilla had learned in her short time on this earth, it was that love can slow a woman down and hold her back. That's why she'd left home for a flower and then a flower for a crown. The body was a good step for her, closer to the life she felt she deserved. Priscilla took her time, Priscilla took her time getting ready for the night. She wanted a hot bath, so she boiled two pots of water on the stove to fill up her bucket. She lathered the sponge so thoroughly it would become a cloud in her hand. This was her time. She allowed herself to feel her body with all its dips and crevices and folds. It was hers. It was important to affirm this daily to make herself remember, because before long, some man might attempt to make her forget. It was Friday, the sun had just laid itself to rest and the body was easing into the night's life. The sounds of Afrobeats, hip life and reggae blasted through the neighborhood, sliding through the louvers, filling the room and bending the walls until the entire space became a bubble. Two girls from the beach ambled into the house. Good evening, they said in unison. Evening, she mumbled back. Now that they were here, now that they, were here they would disturb her. You hear say them find another person for Dansuman, where they cut them up, come out in breast and tense. Kai, who these Sakawa boys? Nah, them my rituals be that. Priscilla had heard stories about women going missing after picking up customers on the roadside. The rumors went that groups of young men would abduct, abduct these women and make sacrifices for their online fraud activities. The connection didn't really make sense to Priscilla. They were cutting up people. What did they do with their body parts? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's quite a cliffhanger, right? Um, <laughs> Billy McTernan is a writer, an artist who experiments with literary and visual art forms. She has an MFA from the Kwame Nkrumah University of Science and Technology in Kumasi and has published many articles and essays from her travels in West Africa. As a storyteller, she's drawn to the ways that stories are manifested, be it through the body in dance and performance or through literature, sound and visual arts. She has been published in TSA Hearts Magazine, Heart News, Artsy, Financial Times Live, and Hearts Contemporary and Arts Black, and other independent, independent artist-run platforms. She's currently working on a piece that falls somewhere between a short story and a novel. Intriguing. I'm Joshua. I started dating Chiki in my final year, four years ago. He was a customer care agent at a mobile phone company and had once helped me do a SIM card welcome back. Chiki was affable and took the job of being a nice person very seriously. He was the kind of person who would never refuse going the extra mile but complained while doing the work good-natured complaints about how he was taking his time or how he was tired in such a way that he was not really grumbling, seeming almost like a normal conversation. I moved in with him after graduation. By that time, I had spent so many weekends at his place that the one time I did not come home on a Monday, mother did not bother asking me what happened. It was like a natural occurrence like nights giving birth today, 
or weeds sprouting in the rainy season. One day, I was living with my mother and her two sisters. The next, I was going from Chike's house to the bank where I worked. Every time he mentioned marriage, I packed my bags and went to Binet's hotels down the streets. The manager knew me and usually assigned me the one room with good netting on the door. Chike always came for me after two days or so. The longest he stayed without me was seven days. The last time he came to pick me, he had been dripping with righteous anger and asked me whether it was not time to stop my childishness. Whenever I think of it, I wonder if I hadn't moved in with Chike, if my attention hadn't been consumed by this period drama we were intent on performing, whether the events that followed afterwards would have been different, whether I would have caught my mother's sickness earlier, or more appropriately, traced its roots and found its cure. But like a hen, I took my eyes off mother for a minute, such that I was unaware of how dire things were at home the Friday, and T and Chidema visited me at work, and a kite swooped in. That day, I was wearing a new Ankara dress. Chidema sat on a plastic chair in the reception area, and Auntie came to stand before me, speaking to me in snatches while I attended to customers. In between clearing withdrawal slips and receiving deposits, Auntie managed to tell me to come by the house in the evening for an urgent matter, and I was able to feign that the most pressing thing then was the zip of the new dress cutting into my back and not the scary reality of what it meant for my aunt to visit me at my place of work to summon me home. Joshua Chizoma is a Nigerian writer. His works have been published or are forthcoming in Paris Kuna, Lolway, Afrida, Anthropy Magazine, Anathema Magazine, Agbubu Magazine, and Pratcha Review. His story, A House Called Joy, won the 2018 Creative Diadem Prize in the Flash Fiction category. He won the 2020 Awele Creative Trust Short Story Prize with his short story, Their Boy, and was shortlisted for the 2021 Afritondo Short Story Prize. He's an alumnus of the 2019 Popular Hibiscus Creative Writing Workshop taught by Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie. Thank you, thank you all for such fantastic stories. Thank you, thank you, Joshua. Um, and for reading so beautifully. So let's have a bit of a conversation about um, your work. And I'd like to start with the short story as a form. And I'm curious about how each of you came to the short story as a form. And I'm particularly curious about um, Hannah, Nana, and Billy when it's your turn to answer the questions, um, if you could talk a bit more about, um, I mean, you all have published extensively in other forms, particularly nonfiction. And I'm always interested in people who move between forms, whether it's the visual form and the written form. Um, I always want to ask them how they decide what form an idea should take. Um, how did you come to that decision with this particular story? Um, so, <laughs> okay, um, the next time we'll go this way. <laughs> I love how quickly you really... Um, I, I write memoir, um, and so 
generally, I'm fascinated with fact, with truth, with how um, our, our stories are circular and how we can look in our own lives and see that our stories are circular, like, let's say, the woman who meets the boy next door in a whole different country and ends up marrying him, or, you know, things like when I returned to Ghana for the first time as an adult, it was almost to the day as when I left. So for me, it's really interesting. I'm fascinated with that, how our lives sort of come full circle. So that's my primary way of thinking, is more in memoir or in essay form, um, personal narrative essays. Um, and I, I, I do write some sort of, it's not really, well, I do write journalism, but it's not reportage. It's more feature writing. I do book reviews. And that stuff is more um, assigned, I would say. Or if it's not assigned, if it's something that I, I want to do, like let's say the African students in Ukraine, that was a story that I did, um, how they were being treated when the war first started. Um, but that clearly, for me, came out with the urgency of news or you know, wanting to sort of focus on that. Every now and then, though, there's a story that will come to me, and then I'll think, oh, wow, and it's a short story. This particular short story, it came to me with little pieces, you know, in little snatches. And for instance, I had about five friends, male friends, who'd had um, cancer and had to have their prostates removed. And each of them was grappling with manhood and masculinity and, and these questions and seeing the struggle that they were having. So it, it, it came to me as like, that character is sort of like all of them in one. Mm. And then my imagining of what if, mm. you know, and with the questions that I myself had based on what I saw of them, mm. um, because our society equates, most patriarchal societies equate um, masculinity with virility. Mm. So what happens when that is gone? Mm. And then questions also of, of gender and what gender is. Mm. And now sort of looking past these binary definitions of gender mm. and what exactly does that mean? What defines gender? And what happens when, you know, like one of my friends said, oh, I'm a eunuch now, <laughs> you know? So what happens when the thing that you're using to define what you are is gone, you know? And so that, in particular, it could only come out as a story, you know, because it was, I was imagining, it was all of this imagining, which is fiction, of course. Um, so that's how I decide, and I, I write poetry too, so, you know, things come out in different ways based on, you know, what they are. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does, yeah, absolutely. So, so. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, that reminds me, there's a really beautiful quote I remember reading back in like 2015 or something. Um, 
a friend of mine, Rahala Haile, who's an air train writer, uh, would tweet a short story of the day. And she started this in 2015 and did it for, for like hundreds of them. Um, and it was the most time just seeing her, her tweets that I would just, okay, like I, I, have, five, you know, I have this amount of time, like let me stop. And it became part of my day um, in a way that I really enjoyed just like as a reader, right? Um, and in one of those, she posted um, an interview with somebody whose name, of course, is now floating uh, in the ether of my brain, but that I will find. Um, but the quote was something to the effect of the short story is the closest that I can get to being a poet without writing poetry. Mm-hmm. And there's something that I thought of, it's, I think about it often because there's a way of, um, there's a way that for me as a writer who often works in nonfiction, who works in reporting and features, who is um, generally writing things that need to convey information, need to convey it quickly, and need to convey it um, to a broad audience. <laughs> There's a way that sometimes when I want to be lyrical or have my flourishes or sort of pose these big questions like the what ifs, the well, but what about, you know, sort of have all these big parentheticals. Um, you can't always do that. There's not always room for that. There's not always, um, it's not always a appropriate, right? Especially, I don't want to pine on somebody's life. Um, and so I, when Maza Mengista, who edited the Aj Saba Noir anthology, asked me to write, the um, it, it felt like, for that collection, it felt like an interesting space to think about questions of home and of love and what it means for somebody's conception of home to be a human being, to be a couple human beings, um, and how that might shift over time. Um, and I think I'm, I'm really interested in gender as well and ways that patriarchal forms of domination show up um, among us uh, and, and how they can be repressive for all people regardless of gender and how and yet ways that they affect specific people most often. Um, and this felt like a way of thinking through some of that without necessarily applying my own questions or any of my own sort of dogma, really, to somebody else's life, um, which I sort of hesitate to do. So. Um, it was good to have them go first, because then it gave me a minute to think of what I'm going to say. Um, <laughs> I think with this particular story, I was still, I don't, I don't practice journalism as much these days. Um, and this particular story, I was still. And I think at the time, it was a good um, space for me to be able to write without having to be like factual. <laughs> you know, like, of course you want to get things right. And we spoke about this earlier in the week of um, sensitive topics and, and, you know, giving space to things that do require um, sensitivity. Um, but like it doesn't have to be like it doesn't have to be someone I know called Priscilla. Whereas I'd been doing all of that work, you know, daily, like going down to the market, talking, you know. Um, so it was a space to kind of explore the what ifs um, without having to sort of get down too into um, the facts. And it's there's a freedom there, um, and things that you might want to say in nonfiction, you know, in journalism, you try you try to be like um, not put your opinion too much and. Even though you would read it and know what I mean, you, you know my politics, but um, you can kind of do it a bit more in fiction where you try to be a bit more objective in journalism. Um, so I think that's something that I enjoy about fiction generally. And then the short story too, similar to what um, 
Hannah was saying in terms of the forms we're kind of used to writing in feature, and I think Nana also said in feature writing and um, lengths and stuff, we're kind of used to doing a couple of thousand um, and telling a story in a circular way. This is kind of a feature. Um, and I think the short story, you must, you have to give the whole arc of the story and everything, it has to come back and, you know, someone's got a 10 minute train ride or 15, 20 minute train ride and it's that time. Um, so I think, yeah, basically most of what they already said and a couple of other things. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Um, so Ida and Joshua, I'm curious about how you came to the short story as a form. Um, when did you start writing short stories? Uh, any particularly influences you want to talk about? Um, yeah. Well, I guess for me it was um, being 17 and just doing poetry, I guess, as everyone or at least most everyone um, does. And then the short story form was just the, the thing you did to just get practice mm. as you're starting out as a writer. Mm. So it was very much a matter of practicality. Mm. Um, I'm trying to move away from the short story. I think I've done it. Um, I've become a bit too comfortable with um, like pursuing or exploring ideas in a very short time, even though the story might be longer mm. than your typical story. but. I guess the form really has you thinking about the best way to say something and say it quickly mm. um, with intensity. Um, yeah, mm. and then I guess for me the earlier, because I primarily, not even primarily, I'm just a fiction girl, girly, whatever. But I guess for me the idea of fiction is this ability, what um, Billy was saying, this ability to kind of grapple with questions in a way that doesn't really require you to take a stand, because mm. that's not what fiction is for. Mm. It's like grappling with questions and contradictions and nuances, and maybe even discovering what you think about things. Yeah, yeah. All right, um, so my, my answer is a lot similar to what Itza said. It's practical for me to write short stories because I'm currently studying for the Nigerian bar, so there, there's no time to write a novel. <laughs> I, I try to, <laughs> yeah, so I, I try to enjoy the writing process, so I can't imagine having a protracted time. It actually takes me a long time to write like a short story, say between three months to six months, so I can't imagine writing a novel and not enjoying myself through the process because <laughs> at some point it just becomes boring and it becomes like work and I, I, I want to escape that. But also, um, just like she said, um, the short story achieves so much within such a short space. It achieves everything that the, the novel or long form fiction achieves within such a short space. So if you're writing a short story, you know, you don't have time to be flat and so point everything. Every character has to make sense. Every sentence has to have its place. So you have just that short time to do that. And I think I'm drawn to the high stakes that the short story um, has. So if I'm writing and I'm done, I want to be sure that this story is a hit, right? And I don't have the liberty of maybe going off tangent and hoping that my, my reader will forgive me and know that at some point, <laughs> I'll come back to what I was talking about. Yeah, yeah, so I'm, I'm drawn to the high stakes. But, but I think maybe I'm ready to write a novel now. Wait, I mean, I don't think you have to um, write a novel, but... That's a lot of shade at novelists. <laughs> That's quite a bit of shade. Um, I mean, I love what you said, uh, what you've all said about, um, you know, fact and 
writing about facts, and I guess you know the freedom that fiction gives to um, ask questions about what the truth is. Um, sometimes unless it's really answer the questions, but really ask questions that um, might help you even as a writer to understand what it is you're trying to say. Um, so I, I so one of the so I want us to segue to some of the questions that I think that you ask in your specific stories, and um, I want us to have a conversation about place. Um, so one remarkable thing about this shortlist is that three of the stories are from the Noah series. Um, incredible, really. <laughs> the Noah guys, you can, I mean, I'll give you a guess who they are. <laughs> um, so they're two stories from the Accra Noah, which Nana edited. Incredible. Um, and one story from the Addis Ababa Noah, uh, which was edited by Maza. I will start from here this time. So um, I'm going to start with Joshua. And with your story, uh, Collector of Memories, the compound, I'm very interested in compound as a space, the compound that Chibusoma lives in. And particularly, I wonder if you could speak to how you constructed that, particularly in relation to language. Um, I found it very interesting, the dialogue, and I could almost see that compound. And, and I'm Nigerian, and he's Nigerian, so I have a bit of a hint into uh, what he's writing about. But there's something very... Um, specific about the kind of language that you use with this story um, that I think could only have come from that compound. Do you want to talk a bit more about that? Oh, yeah. Um, thank you. Thank you for that. And thank you for picking that up. So um, so when I was writing the story, it was I think there was a lot of longing when I was writing the story because the compound was a, a little like the place where I grew up, like the compound where, where I grew up. So it was, it was me going back to that time and seeing all of those places and how we lived. It was, it was really communal, how we lived and, and shared things. And yes, we, we shared toilets, actually, yeah, in, in that place. And um, also it was functional because I, I needed to... Um, explain how Chibusoma got to know her history. So I had to find a situation where it was natural for her mother to explain that to her. So to have that scene where there was a fight, that had to happen. And then also, thirdly, it was more like grounding the characters, right? Because I feel that home, um, it's not only um, the place you're familiar with, it's also the place you come from. Like, apart from the places you've been to, the places you actually came from. And the fact that Chiposoma grew up in that compound had a lot to do with who she eventually turned out to be, her psychology and, and all of that. So I wanted to create um, a vivid image that readers can, could relate to regardless of where they were in the world. And it was, it was such a Nigerian thing for me to do to have that compound there, yeah. Yeah, thank you so much. Um, I mean, I'm thinking as we continue talking about it's thinking about place, and this is the King Price for African writing. And to think, I mean, talk if you any of you wants to speak to um, what places when you think about Africa and African writing. Uh, so Billy Labadi Beach. <laughs> I, I mean, I mean, with the Noir series, I understand that you were asked to pick a section of each city. So I'm curious about why you chose 
Yeah, Labadi. so um, I was living in Labadi at the time. Oh, you were given Labadi? I was living. You were living in Labadi? Yeah, so and had lived there for about five or six years. So I was very familiar with the space. And um, I feel like I might have been getting ready to move somewhere else. I'm not sure, I can't remember. But I wanted to write a kind of love story. <laughs> but love letter to Labadi, not necessarily about the characters, but it was like an homage to Labadi almost, a dark homage to Labadi. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, it was where I was, and some of the things that I write about was things that I experienced in my house, you know, the sounds, the people, the interactions, the encounters. You would meet sex workers around, you'd see them at the bars, you'd see them in the clubs, in the blah, blah, blah. So those were based off of, you know, going back with the fact and fiction thing, they were based off of encounters and then imagined. Um, so Labadi was a, or is a central character for me in this story. Um, and... I was happy we got to choose. I'm, I'm looking to Nanama because she was my editor. Um, <laughs> but I was happy we got to choose because like, I had no doubt in my mind it would be there. So, um, yeah. yeah. Um, can you speak a little bit about the river? Because I feel like okay, the river yeah. is almost yeah. a character itself. Definitely. So, and again, <laughs> sorry to go back to the, the fact and fiction. There are a lot of things that come from you know, the Sakawa boys, the rituals, mm-hmm. the, the, the lagoon that's full of crap, you know, this is actually what happens um, and exists. It's not in Labadi, it's another part of town. But, you, you know, you get the guys taking, I said, Bola, that's rubbish, taking the rubbish to this space and a whole range of messes there. And it's like a life in its own. Um, I edited a story one time, not in Accra, but in Dhaka. Um, it was a, a journalism piece and they were talking about the guys that would take stuff from the, the salvages, from the, the dump sites. And I was like, hmm, let me see how, you know, this can be flipped into um, our context here in Accra and um, the kind of things they see. And, and you do hear about a whole lot of things popping up. Um, there's a whole life and economy and downstream, upstream things happening from people sell things, things, you know, dead bodies turn up and so on. And um, especially at the time, I think we were having a lot of floods and that Kole Lagoon was a big, it's a heated uh, point of discussion in this time of year particularly as well and so I kind of wanted to bring that in as well um, for those who may recognise it mm. yeah thank you thank you uh, it's, uh, uh, Mombasa what I was interested in with your story is the question of belonging and for Pili in particular not just in a family but in a community do you want to talk a bit more about that like who gets to belong and who gets to be accepted and who gets to uh, sort of be lonely, even if this is the place that they come from and if this is the family that they come from? Um, I guess, I don't know, that's a, it's not a very easy one to answer, but I think, because in Pili we have a character who is um, a bit alienated, mm-hmm. isolated, even within a family because of some of the abilities she has. And... Um, she, because of the decisions she's, she's taken, uh, specifically to um, use the powers that she has, and she finds herself, um, well, not belonging in, in her family, but then in a very interesting way, the very things that make her, well, not to say my work is interesting, but like, you <laughs> know, like I don't want to be, you know, um, the things that make her, um, not belong in a family are the very things that other people from the outside mm-hmm. um, make other people gravitate towards her. So it's a, yeah, I think that's a, yeah, that's, that's yeah, yeah. Thank you. Um, so Hannah, okay, I 
will not trade. Do you, could you pronounce the name of the market? Sharameda. Sharameda. Okay. Um, yeah. So it's it's such an interesting space um, to be a turning point at several points in in the story. Uh, I guess because markets are very fascinating. They belong to everybody and they don't belong to anybody. I wonder why that was where you chose um, to sort of be a focal point throughout the story. Yeah, it's precisely because of that. I'm really fascinated by places where nobody belongs, right? So uh, airports, markets, places where it's understood that everyone or almost everyone is transient, right? Like there's not... um, it's not meant to be a space of comfort. Um, and I was curious about what it might feel like to have a character who does find comfort and who does find solace in that anonymity, who finds, um, who otherwise is troubled by or has a troubled relationship to the city, to the country, to nation, right? Um, and it, it was interesting to play around with in part because for many people who are sort of diaspora returnees or just visiting, especially diaspora season, kind of toward um, the end of December, early January, right? Like you almost have um, going to Shadomeda, picking up your souvenirs, your gifts for whoever, whether it's a gabi, whether it's the, um, whatever it might be, art, right? Like sort of caps a trip often and it's a symbol or going through that process um, is a reminder like I'm leaving soon right like my my time here for now at least is coming to an end um, and so I wanted to play around with that association that I've had for a little bit um, and to just think through uh, what it means that it's a space where people of all genders are present and also where the work is predominantly done by women right where it is unusual to see in particular a man of status um, in a space like that Uh, and what does it mean to have a man of status show up and what does their presence uh, do to other people thank you yeah Nana I want to talk about cantonments but um, I also want to talk about the house that they could not return to <laughs> um, so yeah, if you could talk a bit about that. Um, um, cantonments, cantonments, and the house that they could not return because it did not exist. <laughs> <laughs> okay, um, I'll start with the house that they could not return to. Um, I, I, I like probably because it's my experience. I like writing about returnees. Um, people who left, and even though sometimes people leave willingly, they're still in exile in a way because people leave to find fortunes that are not present for them there, not just financial fortunes, but also to be able to change status, you know, because so many of our countries it's more like, who are your people? Mm-hmm. What did your father do? And the sins of the father and the mother are visited on the children. And so I wanted to, um, I'm fascinated by that, by the fact that people leave, and even though it's voluntary, it's still a certain kind of exile. Mm-hmm. And you see people in the diaspora who've been there 20, 30, 40 years, and they're still thinking about going back home and running for office even, you know, go back home to run for office somewhere or whatever. But then what happens is they start sending money to build a house. And I find it ironic because 
they're wanting to build their dream house and they're sending money to people who are essentially impoverished mm -hmm. and expecting for that money to go toward building this grand home. And so I thought it ironic on the one hand that, you know, okay, this, this house is gone. And it's a story that so many people have said to me, uh-uh, this happened to my cousin, or this happened to, it's a very common thing. And then, you know, the fact that the picture that this guy was getting was of this white couple who had come to settle there, you know, their, um, their home. And so they end up settling in cantonments, mm -hmm. which cantonments is where the U.S. Embassy has built this huge edifice, you know. And um, actually, I was in a taxi, and um, I was going to the U.S. Embassy for something, and the taxi driver said, ah, that mighty building. And it just sort of stayed with me, so it had found its way into the story. And so what happens there is sex workers come and... You know, it, by day, it's this very sort of civil and, you know, very upscale neighborhood um, where a lot of returnees have ended up and a lot of um, uh, aid workers, people from other countries that work for NGOs, that work for the embassy, they end up there. So it's almost like a little Europe, a little America, a little whatever. And then the locals come and engage in sex work in the evening. So I thought all of that was interesting. C going home and the way that you negotiate that return because it sort of brings to mind the question, can you ever really go home again? You know, and the fact that you're holding on to this home, but that home no longer exists, and you're not claiming this other place where you've spent, you know, 20, 25 years, 30 years. And so for me, it was, it was a little bit of that. And then also, the house that they couldn't return to was for me very symbolic of the man after his illness and his inability to return to a dream that he had of love, so. Thank you so much. Um, I'm gonna open it up to questions. Uh, okay, we already have a question. Well, I'm not writing poetry anymore, to start with. Um, yeah, but I guess growing older, it's just like more experiences, so you're seeing the world in a different way from when you're 17 and when you're, I guess, when you're older. Um, and then there's more, I guess what publishing does to you is, other than validating you or, or your writing, is it gives your, it places your, your writing in conversation at least with you know, so you're in a, so, cause, well, at least for me, literature is like this, um, I'm looking for an analogy, like a, like a river of sorts, and every writer is like a tributary of sorts, so you're always in connection, like you're always, it's all this big thing, so your writing is always in connection to, to other people's writing, and that makes you, um, other than stepping up your game, cause you can't just write anything, it, um, it gives it, the stakes are higher, as um, Joshua was saying. So yeah, that's, how, that's what I would answer. I have something to add to that. I think it's, it's, it's um, 
natural for people to think that as they've grown, their writing has grown because you think, oh, of course, I'm growing, my, my world is expanding. Years ago, the, the late US um, writer, Amiri Baraka, I took a workshop with him and he said, we writers write 10 years ahead of ourselves. And he said, go back and look at your work. And so I did. And he said, you will see things in your work and ask yourself, was I aware of that even then? You know, you see your work anew and you see that there are things that you unconsciously, you know, whether whatever you call it, the muse, whatever, there's something, there's definitely um, craft that's involved, but there's also something very mysterious that happens when you're writing and how you connect with your characters and what comes to you. And some of it, it's actually things that are beyond you that you're writing. Because sometimes people see things in my work and they'll go, oh, and this and this, and I'll go, ah, yes, I, I, okay, I'll go with that, <laughs> you know? And so I just wanted to add that, the, because I think that that is true, that sometimes you write so far ahead of yourself that even later when you read it, the work gives back something to you. Yeah, I've experienced that a lot in, in the last few weeks because I hadn't read this story since I submitted it, really. It had been so four or five years. It had been some time. Um, and I remember going back to it for a reading we did um, in some capacity and being like, oh, I forgot that was in there. I forgot I was interested in that back then, right? Like that, those moments of like, oh, this is, this is a continuing thing for me. This is a through line for me. Um, so that's definitely showed up a lot for me. But I also think it's very true that the longer I write, and especially the longer I write across genre and form, the thing that I get better with is restraint. <laughs> Um, and I mean that in, in terms of like length, but also in terms of my um, fondness for adverbs. Um, <laughs> and any number, of little, any number of little things also having been an editor where I'm like, okay, I know I'm putting this in here because it's indulgent. I know that this is just for me, right? Or this is for me and like three people. And maybe it's not serving the story, right? And I can say, um, and some of that is just like, you know, I'll start a, a separate doc that's like, here are my sort of, you know, the, the darlings I've had to kill, right? We'll put them here and I'll come back to them later. And I never come back to it, but there's something sort of psychologically calming about that. Um, and I've grown more comfortable with that feeling over the years, certainly. Um, the question I wanted to ask is, do you, and anybody can answer this really, but I was I'll be more interested in Joshua's answer. Um, <laughs> because you talked about um, where you grew up. And do you often sprinkle yourself, some pieces of yourself, into different characters? Mm -hmm. And then sometimes in real life, do you see yourself acting like any of those characters? <laughs> <laughs> Okay, one more. 
So actually, I have two questions, but they just um, the first question is like with dialogue. Uh, I'm an introvert, and I also write short stories. And people tell me that for you to be um, for you to be a very good at dialogue, you have to be nosy kind of, and you have to listen uh, how people talk. And sometimes because I'm always in my room, like where do I hear people? <laughs> I find it very hard to really write genuine dialogue in it's something that I'm struggling with in my short stories. That is one too. If you travel to different parts of the world, can you also write stories about those things? Because sometimes there's this line like, oh you're not you shouldn't be writing about things that about places that are not like your origin places. People usually tell you that you have to just write about like I'm from Mombasa, if you just write about Mombasa, don't write about any other place. Want to share about other experiences in other places that you've been to, and also incorporate that into your life. Yeah, thank you. Mm. I have something I want to. Joshua. Joshua. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> talk, about, talk about sprinkling yourself. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, no, I'm good. Thank you very much. <laughs> okay. Um, so, so I'm um, a very character-driven writer. So I like to get to so before I start writing, I do like this spreadsheet where I write, okay, this person, this is what they like, this is who they're in love with, that sort of thing. And of course, all of those don't make their way into the story, but it kind of gives me a cohesive view of the characters. I, I sometimes feel like I could be walking on the street one day and then meet one of the characters and we say hello and, you know, stuff like that. But coming to your question, yeah, yeah. I believe that if you bring... Um, all of a writer's works, you could find a collage of themselves, like little, little bits of themselves that they've left behind. And sometimes it can be unconscious. You might not even know that you're leaving bits of yourself in your, in your stories. It's not something I consciously do. Yeah. And also sometimes I base my characters on, on people that I know. Right, certain aspects of them, maybe how they talk, how very bold they are, or yeah, yeah. So, so sometimes, like this story, one of the characters is um, loosely based on an aunt that passed away in 2016. It was it was my own way of immortalizing her because I, I felt at some point that I was beginning to forget how she looked and how I was really close to her. Right, I was really, really close to her, and I admired her courage. So I based one of the characters on, on her so that I could come back to it years later and remember that, okay, this, this character. Was, yeah, sometimes I base my characters on, on real people. So about leaving myself and, okay, me um, enveloping some of the characters. I think, I think that happens. I mean, sometimes even when we watch movies, maybe for the whole week you'll be talking like one of the characters, like, stuff like that. So, so sometimes that happens too when, when I read or when I finish writing, and because it's a different thing for me, writing and reading. So when I'm done writing, I'm now like a reader, like every other person, right? So sometimes when I read, and I like the characters, and I think, oh, I admire this person, and for the whole week, I'm motivated by them. The things I say are because of this. So that happens. So, so yeah. Um, I think I'll just touch on the question, one aspect of the question before every other person, about um, having the license to write whatever you want to write about wherever you want to write. And I think that's the beautiful thing about writing, the creative freedom to write about wherever and whatever you want to write about. But what I do think is that if you're writing about an experience that is external to you that you're not familiar with, 
I think there's a burden on you to make sure that you do the good work, that you do the work, that you do your research. So for instance, in my story, we have three, four women in the story. And I, I had to do a lot of research. I had to talk to my sisters. I have been, I'm fortunate to have three sisters that I'm just right in the middle of. So it was easy talking to them and then talking to my mom and older women too. So if you're writing about a place you're not familiar with, it behoves on you to talk to people who actually have that primary experience because it's something you, you might never really have, but it's important you speak to people there and uh, if, it's, if it's possible, visit there and Google and stuff like that so that you are so in that place that you're not writing because of something that is a standout to you. You have to do justice to what you're writing about. And it comes easy if you've experienced it firsthand, but if you haven't, just do the work to make up for it. Thank okay. you. Yeah, we've got like four minutes. Okay, okay. Yeah, but please do. <laughs> and I'm sure someone else has something. I'll quickly, I want to add to that as well. I agree with what you're saying. I think anyone can write anything from anywhere. However, we also live in a, we have a publishing world where there are a lot more white, male white people writing things. And oftentimes, Nana, you spoke about, Nana Masori spoke about this, um, touched a bit, where, um, you know, maybe there are 10, 10 women writing about depression and one from, and it's kind of like, it's great if we can all write their own stories, but if I can't even write my own story, but you can write my story, then I'm not really, it's just not, do you know what I mean? Um, so that's something we also have to consider. In publishing world, the publishers don't always publish people who, um, who, story, who want to tell their own story, but they might publish it if it's come from someone else. Um, so that's another thing to consider, yeah. I wanted to touch on your question about dialogue. Dialogue in, in, in literature is not real dialogue. Right. <laughs> people don't talk like they do in literature. That's, it's craft, you know, what we put on the page. Because people usually talk, hi, how you doing? Oh, yeah, I'm okay. Oh, okay. I mean, you can't write that, you know, because who wants to read all of that? And so you have to figure out how to craft the dialogue in a way that it feels natural to the person who's reading it, but in fact, it is not natural, and it moves the story along. So I disagree with whoever said, oh, you have to necessarily be out in the world, you know? And I think you probably are out in the world more than you think you are. So um, there was that, and I just also wanted to quickly just mention something about your yeah, your question? I don't know if there's like, you know, going in, you say, okay, this is necessarily this theme. I think that for me, they're just these different sort of, they're these different components, you know? Um, a story that I'm writing right now is about there was a, this white female teacher at the University of Ghana who kept wanting to be my friend and kept sort of summoning me. And I was deeply offended by the summoning and I just never would go. And um, she sort of came into Ghana and felt that because she was who she was, everybody should necessarily like. It was, it was a very sort of colonizer thing and I was really sort of aware of it. And I disliked her. Everybody knew that I disliked her, I think, including her. And then I got a phone call one day that she had passed away. Well, she used to go swimming 
and um, because she had some sort of eczema or whatever. And the, um, the fishermen said, oh, we don't go in the water today. The, the, the sky gods and the water gods are angry with each other or something. And so she said, okay, well, whatever. Like, that's like whatever, whatever with the culture. So she went into the water, and apparently from what they say, the water just like almost reached out and sucked her in and then like spat her out dead, right? I find that fascinating. I find it fascinating, this whole sort of idea of colonization and how you determine that the language that someone uses to describe an experience is invalid because you think you're superior in your description, you know? Because the indigenous people may not be able to speak in terms of you know, how European scientists might describe whatever, but they're in this water every day. You know, and so however they describe it, whether sky god or water god, if somebody who's in this water every day says, don't go, and then you decide to go, well, maybe you deserve to be dead, <laughs> you know? So anyway, that's something that for me, and this is like actually like, it was a truth, it was a, it's a true story, but it's one component. But of course, then I'm gonna start adding other components to it that come from maybe other experiences. I just have a super quick thing on the dialogue front, which is that if there are, um, I, I need to do more of this myself, but a thing that I found helpful, helpful sometimes is seeking out the like screenplays and scripts of things that I've watched and really loved, because there's a way that when you have seen something play out already, understanding how the dialogue made that happen um, can help your own process. So that's it. Thank you to all the writers. It's been a truly lovely evening. Thank you for coming. Um, and thank you for your stories, most importantly. Thank you for your stories which have expanded our understanding of um, how African writing can exist in the world. Thank you. Thank you. If you have questions or want to get in touch, you can find us on Instagram and Twitter at Writers Centre. And you'll find us on Facebook by searching National Centre for Writing. Don't forget to sign up to our weekly newsletter by visiting nationalcentreforwriting.org.uk and clicking the orange drop-down box on the homepage. As a UK-registered charity, we rely on the generosity of our supporters to make our work possible. You can make a donation over on the website today by hitting the Support Us button in the top nav. Don't forget to subscribe, rate and review us because it helps other writers to find the podcast. Thanks again, keep writing and we'll catch you on the next episode.